Okay, so what we'll do between now and Lent, like I talked about, is we'll talk about the Gospel of Matthew. But I think it's really important to start out with not just, hey, let's read Matthew 1.1, but let's talk about the Gospels in general, how it is we think we got them, when they were written, and what, why there were four of them, etc. Okay? And at any point, stop me if you have any questions. But the first start is that we call these things the Gospels, and gospel is a Greek word that really just means good news, okay? And this is really important because a lot of times um, we, we hear things like repent and believe the gospel, you know? And the way it's said so sternly and authoritarianly often implies that the news is not that good, <laughs> that the news is mixed at best, right? You're going to hell, but you might not have to. Um, Again, I call that mixed news. I don't call that good news, right? So these books are called explicitly throughout tradition gospel good news. And that means if we read them and we haven't extrapolated some good news, we've read them incorrectly. I mean, that has to be the principle by which we read these, right? If we read them and say, oh, interesting guy, we missed what they were trying to do for us. Because these books are not written to be biographies. The, the, the writers had no interest in, in, in his, historiography. There are no real hard dates in them. Whatever you've heard, there are no hard dates in them. There are no real external markers that we can go back and say, oh, that's what they were talking about. There are names of people, and those don't always shore up. And the Gospels themselves are not always in agreement with one another as to who and what was going on. So it's important to know then that this is a kind of literature that we'd call hagiography. A hagiography is, is sort of, you recognize the word ography um, at the end, like a biography, right? So this word graphy at the end means writing. And then hagias means holy ones or set apart people. And so when you read a hagiography, let's say, of of um, you know Julian of Norwich, of course that'll include she worked miracles and she had the stigmata, right? The wounds of Christ appeared on her physically and mystically. And that's outside of scientific verification, right? Where they came from. Um, but that's exactly the stuff of saints. When you hear St. George slayed a dragon, of course you know dragons aren't real. And I find that very disappointing. Um, <laughs> all children do. Uh, and yet, there's something very believable about dragons. You know, even though we know they're not real, they represent a lot for us fantastically, right? And that's why these stories are so compelling. Well, the, the stories are not written so that you'll say, yep, that's what he did first, and he was born there, and his parents were such and such, and they worked at such and such career. No, the story is really made so that you'll know about the person, and really so you'll believe, you'll trust. Not in the facts, but in what goes so much deeper than the facts, right? These are metaphysical stories, just period. St. Francis, you, you can hardly even read a St. Francis story without it being a hagiography, right? The story of the wolf of Gubbio and how he went to the wolf and shook hands and the wolf communicated with him. You know, uh, the, the more hagiographic it is, the more the wolf says words. The less it is, the, the more the wolf just sort of puts its tail between its legs. But even that is relatively remarkable. Right? And we don't say, that story would never happen. What we say is, wow, what an amazing relationship Francis had with the animals. And that's what we're supposed to do. Not say, 
untrue, unfactual, but wow, look where that's leading me. Okay? And all of the Gospels do that. And that's what they're written to do. And there are some people who try to read uh, the Gospels with the Bible in one hand and a history book in the other. And I just want to tell you, friends, that's a fruitless endeavor that will not work for you because the Gospels aren't interested in this book. They're interested in you receiving some good news as you read about the life of Jesus. And of course, the good news, we've already heard it today, is about God's plans to be salvific. Okay? Now, you probably know that there are four Gospels written in the New Testament, and we have them as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what most people don't know, and, and you being Episcopalians probably do know this, right? Because you've probably heard this before, and I mean this, is that that's not the chronological order for these things being written, okay? And you probably also have heard before that the Gospels were not written in the lifetime of Jesus, okay? So there was nobody following Jesus around with a pen and paper, because they didn't use paper, and didn't have pens, uh, writing down what he did. The truth is, Jesus was, at best, a peasant talking to peasants, by and large. There were some wealthy women who supported him, but very unlikely there would be scribes coming around and writing what he said. Of course, we know, as with all the Bible, that all the stories of Jesus happened, and then they were passed down orally. People told the stories. And then after a while, um, the story needed to be shared at some distance. It's not that people wanted more accuracy. That's always sort of a silly way to think of this, but writing really existed for this story so that it could be sent. It could be sent and circulated so that people who hadn't directly seen could still hear the story from the people who had, if that sort of makes sense. Um, so these things get written down, and the earliest, right, so just keep in mind, we think that Jesus' um, crucifixion, resurrection is somewhere around 30, Okay, around 30. That would have made Jesus about 34, which would have been on the edge of the lifespan, right? A Galilean peasant could expect to live to 35 if he didn't die before he was about five, and he had a one in five chance of doing that, right? So, so he's at the edge of his lifespan at 30 when he's crucified. The earliest gospel is somewhere in this window, and it's just it's a big window, really, when you look at it, Somewhere between 50 and, let's say, 65, we think we've got the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Now, every New Testament textbook you read, every single one of them, will fudge that window one way or another, but that's why I've given a pretty wide bandwidth. I've seen that number go up as high as 70, 71, um, but I think this is pretty representative of what you're going to see. Okay? So, Mark. And why is it that we think Mark is written first? And it's important to know this um, because, again, there's no timestamp on these things. And the other thing that's important to remember is none of the things say by Mark. <laughs> the Gospel of Jesus, by Mark. Not a single one of them says by Matthew, by Luke, by John. All those names came at earliest 50 to 70 years after the things had been written and were circulated and copied. Okay? So, so these names were attributed by early Christian communities, not by the church. There wasn't a the church until 323. Okay? So, so these names are traditional names. 
Mark himself never appears in the gospel, he might. He might be the young man who was in the Garden of Gethsemane and tried to run away and they grabbed his clothes and he ran away naked. Maybe. But no gospel says that. So we don't really know anything about Mark. I just I want you to know. Some people will tell you that you can read Acts, most likely written by Luke, and that Mark is really John Mark, which is great, except it's not the gospel according to John Mark, it's the gospel according to Mark, right? So the traditional title doesn't help us. We don't know this guy. What we do know about Mark is that it's the simplest and the shortest of all the gospels. So I told you already, the gospels at no point see eye to eye. Yes, ma'am. No. Well, if, if, if Matt, I mean, traditionally Matthew, which is a Greek name, is also called, is the, the apostle Levi. They're one and the same person, traditionally. So Levi would, in fact, be his Jewish name and would tell you he's a priest. <coughs> he's a Levite. Um, hard to know, though, right? Because you get into words, right? And Levi means my heart. <laughs> and Matthew means from God. So you start to, there's so many ways to read the story. You can say this is a real person with a real name. This is a person with a name that's meant to be figurative, or this is just figurative. And at a certain point, the real question is, how does the names and the people point you to the good news? And that's got to be the number one question, right? Because that's what the script is called. Okay? And remember, these things are not written so you'll know history. These things are written so that you'll believe. That's, that's what the authors are trying to do, is make you trust in God by telling you these stories. Yeah, we don't know. We prob- Mark is probably maybe um, a single-person editor, an editor, a compiler of stories. Yes. For sure. Uh, we think that there's maybe one person who's written a letter. Of course, we don't, we'll never have an original manuscript. If we did, we wouldn't even know it was original because it wouldn't say, this is the first one. And if it did, that would be very, very um, prone to suspicion, right, for obvious reasons. So that's the test piece. But um, what we do think, Joe, this is a great question, and you'll see this when I, when I line out the other ones, sort of how these things were written. Um, just save that, because I'm going to talk about that. A um, little bit of characteristics about Mark, um, so that you know, again, so we can com- c- contrast to these things a little bit while we're going through here. Shortest gospel. You know, Mark actually, if you're reading carefully in your Bible, Mark has an alternate ending. <laughs> There'll be a couple of lines in the text, and it'll say the earliest sources don't have the following information. So really what happens in Mark is Jesus goes ahead and gets crucified, and then the women go to the tomb, and they kind of see him, and they run away in terror, the end. <laughs> now, a lot of Christian people didn't like that ending. They, they wanted it to be a little happier, right? So what most scholars will tell you is that's where the original one ends, and then later another editor came in and tried to write syntactically like Mark did, and uh, didn't do a convincing job, but wrote a different ending, right? And, 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 you know, there are common ways to do this. 
it's not handwriting, you know, having taught. Students could do a test anonymously for me and I knew exactly who, who did it because A, their handwriting, but B, I also had learned how they thought, right? And I knew that when um, Stephen Chen wrote this answer, I knew he'd copied it because Stephen Chen could have never got that answer. Do, do you know what I mean? If you've taught, like you can figure that out. And so there's ways you can do it. And just to give you an idea, there's liter letters we think are written by Paul, and then there's letters that we think are written by not Paul, but by somebody Paul taught. And the way we make that guess scholastically is you compare the letters and they have completely different set of vocabulary words, right? So, for example, you read 2 Timothy, and you compare it to 1 Thessalonians, and they have completely different diction. Then the syntax also happens to be completely different, and you start to think, well, what's happening here? <laughs> How is it that Paul developed an alter ego to write this letter that in no way sounds like him theologically, uses his syntax or his grammar, and, and then most scholars will tell you, well, here's the easy answer, right? He didn't write it. <laughs> Somebody who knew of him did. Um, with the Gospels, this is really, really tough, again, because we don't have an original piece, right? So this is the guest piece. I'm going to build to the guest piece that we have, and then I'll come back and tell you about how the Gospels are a little bit different. All right, so then... This is really difficult, to be honest with you, because y y these are kind of the dates I, I want to go ahead and make the bandwidth really wide for Matthew and Luke. And depending who you read, somebody will tell you Matthew is the second one written. A lot of people will say that, but I've read people that say Luke is second. But Matthew and Luke are pretty close time-wise. Okay, so that you see that bandwidth to 85. Um, and usually, actually... They're wanting to go, oh, this is terrible. They're usually wanting to go back to like 70. They don't even want to go as early as 65. See, there's this really critical event that happens in the year 70 of our common era, or AD, however you use the timeline, right? That critical event is that the Jews have started a revolution in 66 against the Romans, and the Romans dispatched a legion under Vespasian, completely suppresses it, goes to Jerusalem, and burns the temple to the ground, right? The loss of the Jewish temple in 70 is really a big deal. And a lot of times when you read the Gospels and the, and the disciples say things like, oh, teacher, look, what great, great, great big stones. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be on top. They'll be thrown down. And the disciples say, well, what are the signs? And Jesus says, well, nation will rise against nation. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. People will show up saying, I'm the Messiah, but don't listen. Most scholars will tell you, all that stuff had already happened when the gospel got written so that the hearers were able to hear this message of good news. That was to be expected. All that catastrophe was to be expected. It wasn't a surprise to God. They could be wrong, and that's why maybe you can dial it back earlier. But most scholars will tell you between 70 and 85. And then you get the biggest bandwidth on the gospel of, golly, John. And John, for a lot of reasons, really needs to come last. Um, mainly, uh, John has what you'd say the most theologically sophisticated view of all of this. If you've read John, Jesus doesn't do a lot of things. He does a very small thing, and then he talks about it for two chapters. <laughs> so 
he'll, he'll turn water into wine. That's only in John. doesn't happen in the other ones, right? Uh, there'll be the woman at the well, right, that he talks to. happens in John, not in the other ones. There is, of course, um, the, the woman caught in adultery, and they're going to throw rocks at her. Probably shouldn't be in John, but it's there for some reason, right? It doesn't sound like anything that the evangelist John would have written down. Um, but, but there it is anyway. Um, and, and again, this is something like that, right? The other thing that John does, right, is he tries to use um, Hebrew concepts into, into Greek diction, which doesn't quite work. You know, every time you hear one of those I am sayings, I, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. What John's trying to do with this I am is go back to what God tells Moses, I am who I am. And you can't say that in Greek. You just, you can't. Because names don't translate, right? I mean, you, anybody know who Charlemagne is? You've heard of that name? Charles Magnus. Do you know what he's called in German? Well, Carl, Carl der Grosse, right? Because Carl is the French version of Charles. And, of course, there's James, who's English, but that's Iago, right? I mean... And names don't work like that. They're just completely different. Completely different. And I think Jacob is also Carl. I mean, this is just really strange in German. There's no, yeah, okay, anyway. So John's doing something like that. And you know, you know he's doing it because when the people come to arrest Jesus at the end of John, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am, and they all fall backward. Because what he said is God's holy name, which is not to be uttered, and people are floored. You know, that doesn't happen in any other gospel, and that's only John. And in John, you, if you were here on Christmas Day, you got to hear who Jesus is according to John. He's the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And later down, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Well, that word Logos is a Platonic philosophical ideal, which you don't find any of that Platonic philosophy in the top three, right? It comes in John. So lots of reasons for him to be last. Lots of reasons. All right, so then how did these three come together? And this is really interesting because these three Gospels are called the synoptics. Synoptics, right? And you know this one from this prefix sin is identical to the prefix sim, like similar. And really what, they, what that word means is they have the same vision of who Jesus is or a similar vision of who Jesus is. So it's not identical, but pretty close. And if you were to go to even a, uh, an undergraduate school and study, say, New Testament, one of the first things you would do is have a book called Gospel Parallels. All right, what they would do is they would list, now the order is very different in which these stories occur in all three Gospels, but it turns out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of the same little stories. Okay? The wording is not always the same. Uh, not always the same. And the setting is not always the same, but they're darn close. So here's what we think's happened, is that I told you we have this oral tradition, and what they did is each gospel writer somehow got a hold of what we call a pericope. That's a short story. Again, can you use that in Scrabble? No, it's too many letters. It's not helpful. But imagine that a pericope is a brick. It's a story brick. And these three guys have the same pile of bricks, plus or minus a little bit. And what they're going to do in their gospel, in their good news, is take the bricks at their disposal and build sort of a wall with their bricks, right? And at the end, 
the brick wall is the gospel, made out of little bricks, but unified to make a structure. Of course, you know that if you stack bricks too high, it'll fall over unless you use mortar. So each gospel writer uses their own mortar. Now, mortar is what the stories mean or the setting. Let me just give you an example. You've heard the saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? You know that saying. That's a, that's a pericope. It's called a beatitude. All right? Blessed are poor. So here's where the things get really interesting. That's a brick. Blessed are the poor. Because Luke has Jesus say that. Matthew has Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> so what Matthew has done is stuck a little bit of mortar here at the end of that to say in spirit. Now you could say, now Mike, I'm pretty sure that the poor could be the poor in spirit, so they could be saying the same thing. And of course the answer is, they could be, it's just that they're not. <laughs> because if I ask you the difference between poverty and poverty in spirit, many of you would put poverty in an economic category, and poverty in spirit could be completely different from economics, right? We all know rich people who are poor in spirit, right? So part of the reason they're doing that, of course, is because just like us, they're writing with a particular audience in mind, right? They're writing to a particular set of people at a particular time with a particular purpose. So if I were writing a letter to people in Haiti and all I talked about was how life could be really good if we just accept it, it probably wouldn't go over very well, right? Because Haiti, tends to be the most impoverished country in the world. However, if I talked about how God could be present in the middle of dire poverty, that would be actually pretty good news for them. Well, I think. It, it certainly could be much more good news. Does it make sense what I'm saying? And here's a little bit more of what that mortaring looks like. When Jesus says this statement in the Gospel of Matthew, it happens when Jesus gives something called the Sermon on the... Sermon on the Mount, exactly right. So that's part of this footer <laughs> underneath, that, underneath that wall that Matthew's making. Sermon on the Mount. Well, in Luke, he's not on the Mount. Do you know where he is? He's on a plane. Well, think about the images, how different that is. When you're on a plane, you're one among equals. Right? That's the definition of a plane, is that we're all on the same spot. A mountain implies, well, really different planes. The other thing a mountain implies is that a long time ago, somebody got this revelation from God up on a mountain. That person, of course, is Moses, right? And Moses gave a sermon on the mountain. It's called Deuteronomy, and it's also called the Torah. So if Jesus gives a sermon on the mount, well, look at that. He's like Moses. In fact, he's a new Moses. You'd only care about being a new Moses if you were Jewish. If you weren't, what difference would that make? In fact, it might be nice if you weren't Jewish to know that you're in this common kinship with God, whether you're Gentile, Greek, Jewish, Parthian, Scythian. 
And so, which one did Jesus really do? You, know, you, can, you can say he gave the same sermon twice, once on the mount and once on the plain. That's where you ask these history questions and miss the point of, where, of the whole setting. The mortaring is saying, Jesus is the new Moses, new Moses, so if you're Jewish, listen to him. This is a new law for you. Otherwise, Jesus is saying, we're all in this enterprise together. Well, I think. And that's how you start to hear different mortar for these pieces. Okay? Does that, does that kind of make sense, what I'm saying? Now, Mark arguably uses the least amount of mortaring when you compare the three, because Mark tends to be the tersest. The stories have the fewest details, and um, as a result, what people think is that Mark, being the shortest and the quickest to the punch, was probably the first one written, as I've given you the dates. And people think that Matthew and Luke, therefore, probably had Mark at their disposable when, the, when they wrote their own, right? Because they have the same stories, as I told you. Sometimes, when they're building their brick wall, that is their message, what they'll do is they'll take a story that Mark had put here, and Luke will put that story down there instead, chronologically. You know, so the story that happens early in Jesus' ministry in Mark might happen later in Jesus' ministry when you're reading Luke. And that's because Luke has a purpose for doing it. You know, a lot of times we think this is all random, but this is the idea about there being an editor, is that the editor had the materials and said, where will I put that story to get the picture I want to present? Now, you don't have to be a super genius to do this. Any, any writer who does drafts does this, right? So we think there's Mark, and we're going to call Mark M. <laughs> and what was Mark using? Well, we haven't found what Mark was using when he wrote his stories, so we call this thing Q. Q is um, short for Quelle, which is the German word for well or source, right? So Mark had all these oral stories, these pericopes, and he wrote his gospel M, Mark, okay? Actually, I should just call it Mark because there's going to be another M in a second. This is so obnoxious, okay? Then Luke took Mark and added source, source L, okay? Because Luke has things in it that Mark doesn't have, like the parable of the unjust steward or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? So where did he get that other stuff? Source L, <laughs> whatever that is, right? And Matthew has some stuff that Mark doesn't have and Luke doesn't have either. Okay, actually I did that wrong. I, Mark didn't have Q. Luke and Matthew both have Q and Mark doesn't have it because Luke and Matthew have stories in them that Mark doesn't have. Now, all this letters and diagramming is confusing, but really it's just a way of saying Mark came first. Matthew heard Mark's stories, but had heard some stories Mark didn't hear. Luke heard Mark's stories and had some that Mark didn't hear. Some of Luke's stuff, Matthew didn't know. Some of Matthew's stuff, Luke didn't know. Some of it, they both knew. Is that okay? So let me tell you some of those things. Um, Matthew and Luke talk about the virgin birth, kind of. Mark does, st starts with Jesus getting baptized. Starts. So no childhood stuff. 
Matthew talks about virgin birth. Luke, surprisingly, not really much. Young woman. A virgin once. Matthew makes a bigger deal of that. Okay? Matthew has the wise people, the magi. Luke has the shepherds. They don't have the shepherds in common. They don't have the wise people, the magi, in common. Right? Just some of these differences up front. This is a really great one when you read the genealogy. You know, um, it's really important that Jesus be descended from, from David, right? You know this. Mark doesn't care about that. No genealogy. Matthew and Luke have genealogies, and they're different. <laughs> Luke is written to all people, so who do you think he goes back to? If he went back to David, that would just be Jewish. So who could he go back to that would be for all people? Abraham would be close. In fact, Matthew goes back to Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, goes back to Adam. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So think about what they're saying. Abraham was the first Jewish person, the first person who heard God's call and listened. This is part of the reason we think Matthew's written to a Jewish audience, right? This is the icon of faith. This is their patriarch. Luke is written to the first person from whom we're all descended. So Jesus is a descendant just of Adam like every other human being is, right? Luke is about all humanity. Matthew is about the new Jewish. Here's something else funny about the genealogies, and, and we'll notice that next week, too, and I'll, I'll put a reminder in, in the e-news about what we're going to read ahead of next week. E even though they go back to this, peop the, pe the interim people are totally different. <laughs> um, it turns out that Matthew's gospel tracks Jesus back to David and after David through Solomon. Okay. Luke, on the other hand, goes back through David, but the guy after David is Nathan. Now, David didn't have a son named Nathan. <laughs> Not according to the Torah, he didn't. So, so who is Nathan? Well, you might remember Nathan's the prophet who goes up to David after he has... Um, done this infringement with Bathsheba and says, you, you're, the, you're the man, right? So, so Luke tracks David through a prophet, and Matthew tracks to David, well, through David's real son. <laughs> so what I want to tell you is, did Luke just have a bad genealogy? Maybe, or he, what he was trying to tell you is Jesus' ancestry of character instead of his ancestry of blood. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Again, if you read these as histories, you say, well, how could they disagree? This is crazy. Or you could say, Nathan must have been a nickname for Solomon. But I just think that would be foolish, because that would mean we're not really considering what the writers might be trying to actually tell us. Does, does that make sense a little bit? Again, when we get off of the historicity train and we look at what does it mean, that means something very strong. Because I'll tell you, this genealogy is totally full of problems. Um, Matthew does this thing that there's 12 generations from Abraham to David. There were more. And then he does 12 generations from David to, to 
Did he do 12 to Jesus? He really likes 12, because if you're Jewish, you really like 12. 12 tribes, right? And so what, what Matthew does is he purposefully, I think, changes the genealogy to fit 12s, patterns of 12. Well, you could say well, that's bad history. Of course it is. But it's really good hagiography because it's saying Jesus then becomes the 12th from this descendant of 12 of 12 of 12. Does that maybe kind of make sense? And the, again, and the reason I'm telling you this is because every gospel has its own little flair, okay? And you can spend a lot of time on each one gospel, and again, what you'll hear up front, hopefully, is, hey, we think that these are the main concerns of the gospel. So again, if I told you Matthew is about Jewish people, right? It's written to a Jewish audience, and, and Matthew is, and Jesus is the new Moses. Here's some more evidence. In Mark and Luke, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Well, Jewish people don't call God by name, so in Matthew, Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. When writing to Jewish people, it's really important that you talk about the Torah and the law, right? And that it can be kept. And so that's where Jesus says, I haven't come to change one jot or tittle of the law. Luke doesn't talk about law very much. Luke has stories like Good Samaritan. And, well, well anyway, that's very outside the system of Matthew. Oh, Luke has the other story, the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray, right? And which one comes out justified? Well, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Matthew would never say something like that. Matthew would say the Pharisee comes out justified. Of course, he's a good Jew. <laughs> Does it make sense a little bit? I can't tell you're not sleeping, so I don't know if I'm even being peaceful. <laughs> this may just be awful. Uh, tell me more about what you mean, having gotten farther away well, from... Yeah, and then you have to ask yourself, what difference does any of this make? And I think that becomes very important, right? Because... Um, there are books and there are scholars who will do this just to do it. And there's, these are people called source critics. And what they do is they read these stories and they say, well, that part of that story comes from source Q, and that part comes from L, and that part comes from M. <sighs> that was a good day's work. <laughs> um, that's why I didn't get a PhD. I had a teacher who was very talented in doing that. And, um, wow, he sure ruined Bible study for me um, at that level. Um, 
I think here's the problem with a lot of this. To be honest with you, people who have ne never read the Bible that are kind of open to it, they pick it up and they read it and they see a lot of this stuff. That Matthew and Mark and Luke say very different things. People who have grown up going to church have been taught that they all say the same thing and so they can't see that they're actually very different. So part of what we have to do in Christian ed is unlearn a lot of things that our church should have never taught us. And this is going to sound funny to you, but this is part of why I think the Episcopal Church is my last stop on the Christian journey. Because um, if I started talking about M, L, and Q in the church that I grew up in, people would say to me that my higher education had watered down the truth. Because that's not what they'd heard before. So their criterion on whether something a preacher says is true or not is whether or not they've heard it before and whether it has like, you know, it's, it's good old faith talk. So if I came and read a book and said, look, here's the scholar's name, here's what she or he said, here's where most of the academic community falls, they would say, who cares? Actually, in some faith communities, having a master's degree from an accredited seminary is a strike against me instead of a, a check in my favor. Now, this may sound crazy to you, right? Um, but I promise you it's American Christianity, right? And so the Episcopal Church, I feel, is one of those places where when I come in and I tell you I've got a master's degree, you'll say, oh, I wonder if you have something new to say. And that makes us very, very different, right? Because when we start talking about even the question of, what did the author mean, and how does that influence the way we read the text? Well, the author was God, of course. <laughs> and that becomes a really, really big question. Was the author God, or was the author Matthew? And, and again, to read the story itself, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible is not the Word of God. Jesus is. <laughs> and Jesus is not the Bible. And, and, and this is this great phrase by Martin Luther, the Bible is like the manger. It holds Jesus, but it isn't him. And, and this is one of those gifts we have to return to, right? If we're ever, and you heard this in the sermon today, and I think it's right. If we're ever not really sure what the Bible says, well, the decision we make is what Jesus, as best as we could say, did or would do. So that little thing, what would Jesus do, actually in some ways is very helpful. And, and not the Jesus of history. What would the resurrected Jesus do? I don't know if I should forgive my brother or not. Well, here's the good question. What would the risen Jesus do? But the Bible says I don't have to. That's right. And what does the risen Jesus say? I, I mean, that just becomes actually a really helpful way of navigating this. And the more I think we have a picture of, of what it is the Bible is trying to communicate, then I think the better picture we have of who the resurrected Jesus is. Right? And that's what these Gospels are doing that's really interesting. So, totally, totally weird. You know, this, this is already sounding totally weird. Let me tell you a little bit about the Gospel of Mark, because we're going to read Mark's version of the Passion. That's the book the last week. But let me tell you a little about Mark before that, right? Because we're going to start with Matthew, and Matthew was starting with Mark, all right? So Mark is this really interesting word, because the sentences are all very, very short, just like the kind you wrote when you were in the fifth grade, right? It's, this is in fifth grade Greek. And Mark's favorite word is the word immediately, just like yours was in the fifth grade. Um, John the Baptist came baptizing, and immediately Jesus showed up, and immediately he got baptized, and then immediately he went into the wilderness. 
there's no transitions, because when you're in the fifth grade, there aren't. You just go from one thing to the next, right? Everything's immediate. And the other thing that Mark does, it's very, very curious, more so than any other, I'm gonna skip this one for a second, tell the other thing. The other thing that Mark does is, Jesus shows up, gets baptized, gets tempted, comes out, and starts doing miraculous stuff. He spends three chapters doing miracles before he really says much. So that when you start reading that he said stuff, he's proven he's worth listening to. Because actions speak louder than words, and they sure did when you were in the fifth grade. In Matthew and John, Jesus says a bunch of stuff, and that's the miracle, what he says. And then he does some deeds to help back up so you know it's not just talk. But in Mark, the actions come for three chapters, and then he does stuff, right? Just like you would do if you were writing for a fifth grader. I don't mean that it's a child gospel. I mean it's very action intense, right? And that comes first to prove. Mark does this really curious thing though, that no other gospel really does. Mark is all about um, Jesus telling people not to tell. So he healed someone of a demon, and he says, don't tell. The disciples say, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody that. And you might be wondering, why does Jesus want them to keep the gospel a secret? And the answer probably is because <laughs> they didn't actually know who he was, and Jesus didn't want them circulating false information. That is, the disciples, just like we do, and I think this is important to think about church tradition, because I'm going to do this too. I, I'm going to tell you that, that Christian tradition has got a lot of Jesus wrong according to the Bible, right? But, but you need to know I'm saying that, and a lot of what I'm going to tell you must also be wrong. <laughs> it's important to know that, right? Um, a lot of the problem is, <clears throat> in Mark, is that when you go tell people that Jesus... <clears throat> is the Messiah, the anointed one, who's come to rescue us from all of our problems, well, then they have an expectation that, what do you know, he's going to rescue us from all of our problems. And I have not had that experience of Jesus yet. He has yet to rescue me from all of my problems. In fact, <clears throat> he's yet to rescue me from most of them, or actually any of them. I'm not sure I've ever had like the, the golden parachute sent to me by God in the name of Jesus. Dear Mike, use the golden parachute. This is salvation because you said my name, Jesus. I just, I've never had that experience, really, you know? Um, and the disciples were sure thinking Jesus was a golden parachute. So if I go telling you the wrong thing, you're going to, exp you're going to come to Jesus with the wrong expectation, and you may not be able to even see who he is. If we read the Gospels and say, this is all written so that God won't send us to hell, I'm going to tell you we're reading them wrong. If that's the only reason, why would we keep living? If it's, this is life, it's all about going to heaven, then, then why would, after this point where we have this turning point and converted, why would we keep living? That just wouldn't make any sense. You know, Christians have wrestled this, this for a long time. And I'm going to tell you, I think this is why most Americans are not interested in Christianity because we're circulating the wrong message. And the Jesus we're circulating, right, is this swarthy male hero figure, of course he's white, in white churches. <laughs> of course he is. And, and he actually ends up being pretty judgmental, right, because what Jesus does is says that the way I look at the world is the right way. Never mind that he does controversial things this whole ministry, things that if they happened in our church, people would just quit. You know, not only would they quit, they'd write hate letters. 
They might even threaten their, their preacher or their vestry. Had that happen to me once. <laughs> it was a little scary. And again, I'm not telling you I know all the right answers. I just know a lot of what we're doing can't be right. It can't be right. It doesn't match with the Jesus of the Gospels. And that's why the study becomes really, really important. Right? And so this, I think, becomes really important is we have to keep it a secret until we really know who Jesus is. Right? And we don't go around saying, bow to the doctrine of Jesus. What we try to do is say, connect to the experience. I mean, I think that's what evangelism is. Evangelism means telling people good news. Gospel, the word for gospel is euangelion, evangelion. Well, it's not in Greek, it's not gospel, it's evangel, right? So an evangelist is someone who tells somebody else good news. Good news, Jesus hates the way you're living. (laughs) I, I don't think that's really good news. Good news, God has not given up on you. I mean, that's, I think that's better news, right? Better news. Uh, of course, all of us have to work our lives out until it becomes good news to us. And what's good news to me will be somewhat different what good news to you is. The particulars will be very different. But, of course, you know the devil's in the details. And so each one of us essentially has to have different good news. And, and I think this is where there's all this sort of layering stuff, right? We, we were taught that Jesus is the guy in the white who wears the blue sash. You've seen so many pictures of that. His hair is always pretty well done, you know? His beard is about like mine. It's nice and short, you know, trimmed. Um, he seems very approachable, right? Seems like a nice guy, a good friend. And then he drives people out with a whip, and a woman comes up and says, heal my daughter, and he calls her a female dog. Well, he didn't really say it like that, Mike. And, and how do you know that? The story says that he did. We've already decided that can't have happened, because that's not the nice Jesus. And again, this is where we have to study and go back and say, wow, what are, are we actually keeping the gospel secret with these missed pictures that we have? And, and what would it be like if we live the secret gospel instead of the one we've been told, you know? Again, typically what I've been told is that this is all spiritual. It's all spiritual. It all happens when you die. And again, I just, for the rest of the world, that's just not very compelling. You know, it's good for us because we're the wealthiest country in the world, but, but if you're not, that's just not real compelling that God wants you to suffer until you die. That was really strange, and I don't know that that even came back to your question, but, but I do think we have all these layers, frankly, that we need to undo. You know, we need to undo. And, and um, what's great for me is as I do this with you, I see even more I kind of have to undo. I mean, the, the truth is, um, following this guy around is not always, well, it's not always happy. You know, he himself was very lonely. He says to the disciples, and Luke, do you want to leave me too? expecting that they do. But if he's that soft, nice guy, then wouldn't you think everyone wanted to be his friend? And that's where part of this is becomes really important. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Thank you. So, so here's the last thing we'll do today. On the next week, we'll, we'll, we'll come and we'll look at Matthew, having read Matthew 1 through 3, okay? 1 through 3. Three chapters a week, no big deal, right? Can read that in the bathroom. Um, here's a brief history. In the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312, uh, Constantine converts to Christianity or some kind of Christianity, right? And that's when he wins the battle, he becomes a co-emperor, and then he seeks out to become the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, because at the time there were four Caesars, right? So he becomes the Caesar of Caesars. Does that by 321. In 323, he calls the Council of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed, because what Constantine wants to do is have a creedal statement, one Christianity, one empire, one unity, and that was really hard as hell, because there wasn't one. There were little communities all over the place, like there still are. And some of them, you know, gave up on that a long, long time ago and have still given up. Like in Egypt, there are the Copts, Coptic Christians, right? And, in, and um, then there's, there's the Ethiopic church, and they have very different views of who Jesus was. And did he have two natures or one nature or half a nature? This is a sort of business, right? And, and they gave up real fast on that here. There wasn't a definitive canon of scripture, Jesus, is it 380 or 385? One of those. Council of Chalcedon, Chalcedon the second Christological ecumenical council. So, so, so notice that's 62 years between a creedal statement and a canon of scripture. Right? Canon, by the way, is this word we use, and a canon is really a reed. It's a measuring stick. So that means that the scripture has been measured and found to be the right dimension, as it were, but also that the scripture is a measuring stick to measure your life against. So it's this dual purpose, right? And keep in mind that there wasn't a real Jewish, we call it the Old Testament, they call it the Hebrew Bible, whatever, 150, okay? So that's a long time before we even got the Old Testament set up, right? All right, so in these 62 years, there's a Christianity, and of course the question is, we've got a common creed, do we have a common set of readings, right? And, and how do they do that? Well, there was a letter circulated by this priest named um, Athanasius. He was the one who ultimately made the Nicene Creed mean what it meant, and it got revised in 385 because of some of his writings. He sent a letter out in about 360 that had all the books we have now and none others. And here then are what scholars think are the criterion, and you can read this historically about how we got what we got. The first criterion was there were lots of letters, and we're finding some of them, like the Gospel of Thomas. You've heard about that, right? The Gospel of Thomas is real controversial because uh, it, it, it's really old. It's not. The Gospel of Thomas is from 150. So I told you the Gospel of John may be written in 100. That's 50 years later. A lot happens in 50 years. That's two generations in the ancient world removed. Okay? And as a result of those two generations, Thomas has some elements of Gnosticism in it, which is this philosophical movement that is from 130. And so it's artificially imposed on Jesus, right? So Thomas should not be authoritative. I just want you to know, right? We've got enough problems with the Gospels we have. We don't need other ones that are full of problems, like the Gospel of Judas and Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and James. All of those are later than that. Again, when you're later looking backward, you put what are called anachronisms in, right? Like if you read Julius Caesar, they look up at the clock tower, well, there's no clock tower in the Roman times. They had sundials, right? I mean, this is crazy. Okay, so one of the things they look at is given that there's all these different letters, they say 
is there a majority? Is there a letter used by a majority? Right, so criteria number one. Criteria number two, um, do they fit together with the majority letters? So if it's controversial or not, does it sort of fit together? Now you may have a vision that people sat in a room praying and God revealed to them, put in the book of James, don't put in the shepherd of Hermas, and maybe it worked like that in the end, but historically what happened is not enough people were reading the shepherd of Hermas, so it didn't make it. Were there other gospels circulating at the time? Well, maybe Thomas in Egypt, but you see, that's only in Egypt, and we've got a big empire, and people weren't reading Thomas in other places because it wasn't compelling for them. It just wasn't. It's a block of sayings, most of which are, are in the other ones, right? So, um, as spiritual as it was, those are the human criteria, right? Did it, did it coalesce together with the other accepted books? Were enough people reading the books? Were there, the last one is, were there embarrassing incidents in the books? Because if they were, you could chop those out. And I'll just give you an example of this. We have in our New Testament a book called Jude, okay? And Jude is very short. It's one chapter. It turns out the whole text of Jude is cut directly out of a book called First Enoch. First Enoch did not make it into our Bible, almost did, but people decided not to put it in. But they decided that this portion of the book could make it in. So it's a little bit funny like that. And you can read these books that almost made it again. Again, the Shepherd of Hermas is a book that almost made it into the Bible. We know that the book of James has been on the fence for a long time. In fact, Martin Luther put that as an appendix in his German. Martin Luther hated the book of James. It did make it barely. You know, Shepherd of Hermas barely didn't make it. You go read Shepherd of Hermas and you'll say, thanks be to God, that is not in the Bible because it's like Moulin Rouge, if you've ever seen that movie. It's like a book you would you would write after you've drank a bunch of absinthe, right? <laughs> it's just full of these visions and floating angels and flapping wings. And it's, I mean, you don't even like Revelation in general, and that made it in. So, so this is, that's sort of the deal. Well, <clears throat> this council met together and said, basically, um, based on, on coalescence and widespread use, that these then will be the authoritative books. And, and understand then that they didn't say you can't read the other books, not initially. What they said is they don't have the same weight. Later it was decided that since they didn't have the same weight, using them was heresy, blasphemy, unorthodox, um, taboo, and that those books had to be burned so that we've only found them sort of in textual graveyards. You know, important texts were buried, not burned, and that's where we found some of these things. Um, but again, books that were really, really, really important, people actually would have lost their life to preserve. And the case in point has to do with what we call the Hebrew Bible. Jewish people were literally giving their lives to preserve it. They weren't doing that for the Gospel of Thomas. I just want you to know that. Okay, so that's another testimony to how weighty these books were. You know? um, is it an imperfect process? Of course it has to be. It has to be an imperfect process. Although having a group of scholars sit down and do it historically, you'd have the same kind of disagreements, I think, as you'd have if you did it this other way, you know? Because scholars can really agree about anything. They want to disagree in some ways. You know, there's incentive to disagree with everybody else because then you get notoriety. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is part of the problem. 
Is that a helpful answer? Helpful enough? Now, why we got them in the order we have, I don't really know the answer. And it's important to know that if you were to read the New Testament chronologically, you would read the letter, Paul's letter, 1 Thessalonians, first. Remember, the first thing you'd read, the Gospels would come towards the end instead of at the beginning. John, probably dead last, or the Apocalypse of John, the Revelation. Those, those would be at the very back end, chronologically. And it's an interesting enterprise to think you know nothing about Jesus, and, and you're going to read the Bible, and so chronologically you read 1 Thessalonians first. And Paul talks about what being a follower of Jesus is without talking about Jesus at all. Paul says nothing about Jesus' life, nothing. Except in 1 Corinthians, he talks about having the Lord's Supper. That at Jesus' last meal, he said, bread, body, wine, blood, drink this, eat this. That's the only thing Paul tells you about Jesus. Which again tells you that those oral stories had to be in circulation. Because why would you convert to a faith based on a person if you knew nothing about that person? All right, so, so again, the stories obviously are older than Paul. They just were written down later. And they were written down in some ways with Paul in mind. He influenced the telling of the stories. Is that okay? I'm out of time, and I didn't even put you to sleep. Next week, let's talk about Matthew 1 through 3, just three short stories, and, and we'll just take a good look, and it'll be great because it's Epiphany, which only happens in Matthew.